The Musical Review Parade wanted to be a satire of a new deal and the failure to live up to its promises. The show featured a Labor Day parade in which the story behind each float became a satirical sketch about issues related to unions and the workers. Two years before the pro-labor musical review Pins and Needles became a big Broadway hit in 1937, another musical featuring pro-labor songs flopped after just 40 performances. And the Theatre Guild, which did so well with Pins and Needles just a few years later, lost $100,000. In today's brief bonus edition of Labor History Today, we bring you the fascinating prelude to the success of Pins and Needles, starting with workers' social clubs in Europe and in the United States, and the workers' theater movement. I'm Chris Garlock, and this is Labor History Today. By the late 1920s, workers' social clubs in Europe and in the United States, motivated in part by a strong sense of class consciousness, had established dramatic groups dedicated to the production of edged prop theater for working class audiences. The workers' theater movement, from now on WTM, took cues from Soviet edged prop and German expressionist theaters and adapted their theatrical form of a one-act play with simple sets based on episodes loosely connected by song and workers' chants. The WTM was an amateur theater as it drew its actors, playwrights and directors mainly from the working class. These troops considered their principal goal to be agitation, not entertainment. Thus plots described local strikes or labor issues. On both sides of the ocean, the WTM shared many historical, structural, and ideological traits, yet crucial cultural and socio-political differences rendered the movement in the United States a unique experience. From the onset, because of a multiracial characteristic of American worker forces, theater units seeking to mobilize and entertain specific communities performed in their own language and offered plays that reflected their own culture and tradition. But by the early 1930s, the American WTM comprised a majority of English-speaking groups and focused its productions on current events that were peculiar to the American experience, exposing such issues as xenophobia and other racialist stances. For instance, the Sacco and Vanzetti trial and the Scottsboro case were among these topics often discussed in this, in this place. So this new theater developed also a distinctively American character that incorporated features from such genre as minstrel shows, vaudeville, and variety shows. Eventually, in the second half of the 1930s, the WTM also effectively used music as a propaganda tool and exploited its potential in the musical review. In truth, music had already constituted a fundamental element in the place of the Wobblies and of the earlier WTM groups, a significant step toward the politicization of a musical theater, for instance, had already characterized the 1920s productions of a new playwright's theater, where American minstrelsy, vaudeville, and review often appeared next to agitprop skits of European social drama and Marxist doctrine. But the efforts of the new playwrights to encourage activism by employing American musical practices did not create a sea change in attitude towards the, the atten their attendance, as none of its productions ran 
for more than 50 performances. In fact, the radical propagandistic topics and experimental character of their plays overlooked the needs of average American workers who seemingly still prefer to be entertained rather than educated in their leisure time. A trend that continued even later at the height of the Great Depression when Americans really wanted anything but a reminder of their precarious economic and living conditions. They wanted to laugh and forget their anxieties. This issue became especially critical for the professional theater guild when, apparently to keep afloat, it turned to the leftist political musical review. The company, though, had neither a history of leftist involvement nor a mandate to reach a working class audience. The Theater Guild had begun in 1918 as a private commercial organization geared toward the production of full-length contemporary art theater. To ensure financial stability, the Guild's governing board developed a subscription network that, by the end of the 1920s, had reached more than 60,000 in New York and the other cities of the Eastern Theater Circuit. But even the robust guild suffered during the depression as subscriptions fell and financial burdens increased. And to help limit losses and reach a wider audience in its 1934-35 season, it turned to two propagandistic works with social significance. One is They Shall Not Die by John Wexley in 1934, which is a play dealing with the Scottboro case. And the other one is of course Parade, the musical review Parade, which is a satire, or wanted to be a satire, of a new deal and the failure to live up to its promises. So Parade, the show featured a Labor Day parade in which the story behind each float became a satirical sketch about issues related to unions and the workers and the worker struggle. Writers George Sklar and Paul Peters provided the basic material of the show, and Jerome Moros composed most of the music, even though several other composers contributed to the music and the sketches. Uh, among others, Mark Blitzstein contributed the sketch sent for the Militia. The Theatre Guild opened a tryout of parade at the Colonial Theatre in Boston in May 6, 1935. The 28 original acts, yes, 28 acts uh, of the show included musical numbers sympathetic to the working class, such as sketches satirizing capitalism, fascism, and other perceived enemies of the proletariat. The program notes left no doubt about the producer's expectations. Parade in 1935 set, uh, is 1935 set to music. We are living in an unusual times. We are inclined to take some of the foibles of the day too seriously, others we pass by too, high, too lightly. Parade is designed to give you a perspective. It is bright, witty, and nimble, and yet it has a sting. It is, in fact, a review with a definite idea and not just a potpourri of songs and sketches about sex and love and the moon above. The result, though, failed to match the producer enthusiasm, as no one took the Theatre Guild seriously as a promoter of left-wing politics. The extreme propagandistic issues in Parade might have appealed to the militant audience of the WTA, but they frightened the guild's heavily middle-class subscriber base. 
the force of a political message threatened to obscure the sound dramatic construction of some of the sketches, and negative reviews greeted opening night at the Colonial. Helen Eager at the, of a Boston traveler wrote, there was no one at the Colonial last evening at 11.45 who had not been thoroughly reminded that there was a depression bowing down these United States, that starvation was talking the land. Realism, often to start for comfort, much less amusement, frequently overwhelms the satire. And even harsher verdict came from Eleanor Hughes of the Boston Herald. The audience came with the evident intention of being pleased. It is a safe guess that by the time parade was over, it was either bewildered, alarmed, or annoyed. As the evening wore on, matters grew more and more serious until entertainment became propaganda, and those members of the audience who had come to be amused wondered uh, whether they had not made a mistake. In light of these reviews, the authors of Parade revised and changed some numbers, also cutting some numbers uh, of the show, before its broader premiere. But cutting and polishing could not mitigate the over-propagandistic tone of the sketches, and the socially conscious musical review ran in New York for only 40 performances at a loss to the Theatre Guild of approximately $100,000. Only a few sketches won praise for wit and fine craftsmanship, but for the most, critics suggested that the communistic aspect of the review had been exaggerated. Evidently, Parade suffered from an identity crisis. It met the expectations of neither a leftist propaganda piece nor a mainstream satirical review. The Guild had no credentials as a promoter of left-wing politics, and uh, the show uh, treated the, its uh, material too realistically to be re received as uh, a merely entertaining satire. Percy Hammond commented on, in the New York Herald uh, Tribune, the USA, one gathers from parade, is the land of a hill and the home of a nave. The bird of freedom is a buzzard, and the star-spangled banner with its candlestick colors is a tawdry rag emblematic of oppression. After the fiasco, Moros, uh, the musical director of Parade, analyzed the show's failure and recognized that trying to raise the political review to the formal level of a professional review, he and his collaborators had adhered too closely to the principles of a commercial musical theater rather than formulating new rules peculiar to the revolutionary theater. He then also theorized guidelines for the successful leftist writer uh, seeking to convey a socio-political content. For instance, he suggested that the revolutionary review should combine both musical comedy and review forms telling an important story in swift-moving five-minute blackouts review fashion. Rome also argued that settings should be simple and minimal, possibly just heightened by, by exciting lighting, so that the audience would not be distracted by elaborate sets and instead focus on the meaning of the various numbers. In the end, he summarized, I envision a new review in America. It is one of the most important types of native culture yet to be developed, and it should be restored in the, uh, to the working class, from whose vaudeville and minstrel show entertainment it came. 
And indeed, history proved that when it addressed the larger audience, the target audience, with intelligent satire and wit, and in a simple and direct musical idiom, the musical review developed into an important and in many ways the most far-reaching expression of the WTA, as the stunning success of Pins and Needle showed. That's it for this bonus edition of Labor History Today. You can subscribe on your favorite podcast app, even better if you like what you hear, and we sure hope you do. Just like it in your podcast app, pass it along, and leave a review. That really helps folks to find the show. Labor History in Two is a partnership between the Illinois Labor History Society and the Rick Smith Show. That's a labor-themed radio show out of Pennsylvania. Special thanks once again to the Our Daily Work, Our Daily Lies Brown Bag series for today's talk by Michigan State University College of Music professor Maria Cristina Fava, originally given in October 2012. Be sure to check out her longer discussion on pins and needles in last Sunday's edition of Labor History Today. Our Daily Work, Our Daily Lives is sponsored by the Michigan State University School of Human Resources and Labor Relations and the MSU Museum. The series is organized by MSU professor John Beck. Labor History Today is produced with the Kalmanovitz Initiative for Labor and the Working Poor at Georgetown University. The Labor History Today team includes Ben Blake, Patrick Dixon, Leon Fink, Sherry Lincoln, Joe McCartan, Evan Papp, Jessica Pozak, and Alan Weirdak. For Labor History Today, this has been Chris Garlock. Thanks for listening, keep making history, and see you next time.